Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. It's the end of another summer, but both Susan and I are experiencing a very strange sensation. There is nobody, and I do mean nobody in our house, that has asked for a new backpack, that (laughs) has wanted a certain kind of pen that wants to go shoe shopping or even have us order things they bookmarked online, which is actually more like what my back to school <laughs> shopping has been. I don't know what you're talking about. I just spent hundreds of dollars getting my kid ready for the dorm. I don't, I don't know that I fall into that, but he does pick things out himself. So yes, there's no back to school list that I'm going by this year. I know we haven't gone to that back left corner of Target That's right. When you walk in there and you see all this stuff for back to school in like July and you get all excited and the kids groan. We have given all of his uniforms away. (gasps) I mean, I guess it didn't occur to me until we put all those polos and all the khaki things in a bag to go down to the school's trade up closet, you know, like when you grow out of things. Uh huh. Wow. (sighs) All of that to say that we are experiencing a little bit of (laughs) an empty nest or on on the verge of such. And we are going to take the month of August. Um, Susan calls it going fishing, but I (laughs) am here to tell you. (laughs) I'm not actually fishing, no. (laughs) No, I don't even eat the fish on the fish and chips platters in London. So I just eat the chips. So we started thinking about former subjects. And the one subject that popped into both of our heads was Lillian Gilbreth. And it's not because she was a mother like we are and experienced empty nesting at some point. And it wasn't because she was a working mom that was balancing all of that when people in her class were not working mothers. It wasn't that. No, it's because our sons, the ones that are flying our nests, are in this episode three times. So all I'm going to say is stick around. Sometimes we tuck bloopers at the very end of the episode after the end music. So you may have been missing some all this time, but there's definitely one in there that I think you might enjoy. So enjoy the story of Lillian Gilbreth, and we will post another, as the Satellite Sisters call it, thanks, ladies, new to you show in a couple of weeks, and we will be back with a brand new episode during the traditional back-to-school month of September. On with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. And in about an hour, you'll remember her as much, much more than the mother of a dozen children. The end. Let's talk about Lillian Moeller Gilbreth. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1878, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution is first proposed in Congress. Forty-one years later, it passes, worded exactly the same way, and becomes the 19th Amendment, giving women the vote. The U.S. Supreme Court rules that race segregation on trains is unconstitutional. The first telephone directory is issued in New Haven, Connecticut. Harley Proctor introduces ivory soap. New York installs the first firehouse pole. Vaseline is patented. HMS Pinafore debuts. 
Cleopatra's needle is installed in London to commemorate the British defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte 63 years earlier. Elizabeth Arden, George M. Cohan, and Joseph Stalin are born. And on May 24, 1878, the future Lillian Gilbreth is born in Oakland, California. Lily Moeller was born in 1878, the oldest of what would eventually be the nine children of William and Annie Delgar Moeller of Oakland, California. Papa was from an upper-crust East Coast German family who made their money through sugar refining. See, Papa's family were viewed as old money, which seems to me, through all that Gilded Age research we did, to be mm-hmm. people who showed up in America with their money already gathered up. <laughs> Right. Because this family had, like Susan said, made their money in the sugar refining business, but had done it mostly in Germany. So now they live large, but plainly Knickerbocker-like. New York hates ostentation and everything uh, in several floors of a building on 37th Street. So Annie, Mama, um, was the daughter of this immensely wealthy man who basically made his money making work boots for gold miners during the California gold rush of 1849, and then got the heck out of manufacturing and parlayed into real estate, which was more genteel. Yeah. You know, the people that always made the money during the gold rush, making the pancakes and providing the shovels. Those are the people that made the money. Uh Uh-huh. So Annie had two older sisters who had had the kind of whiff of black sheep about them, one for eloping and one for divorcing and going to work. The horror. Gasp. So she wasn't the trailblazing child at all. She was the she was the last hope actually. She was very sheltered and very pampered and very controlled and very ladylike upbringing. They're like you will marry money and you will go and be a lady. Annie's brother was educated with the intent of getting him ready for Harvard, but Annie and her sisters convent schools, no academic subjects really, but the social graces and music. What we got here. Yeah. It was thought that all that brain work took all the energy ladies needed for baby making. (laughs) You know, so she wasn't allowed to study just a year of finishing school abroad, don't you think? And then a marriage to some rich and suitable young man. Well, that's what she needed for the life that they had planned for her. So she was cool with it. She wasn't saying, I want to get a job. I don't want to go to college. I want to be a mom and I want to run a big house and lots of servants. Yes, please. Well, so on their way to deliver their daughter to this Institute of Refinement in Germany, they made a fateful call upon some acquaintances as they passed through New York City. And their 26-year-old son, William, got struck by Cupid's arrow, as they say in Four Weddings and a Funeral, Thunderbolt City. (laughs) Well, this refined, curly-haired lady just blew him away. Now, curiously, no word on how Mama felt about him. I mean, he's tall, he's well-brought-up, Intelligent, most important to her parents, rich, and from a well-connected German family, jackpot as far as they were concerned, but I'm not sure her feelings ever came into it at all. No, I don't think so either. And his parents were not, that wasn't the match that they had planned for him. Well, California was loud and weird. And their money was new. It was still crunchy. (laughs) So sugar people are cooler than work boot people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's sugar. (laughs) I'm just saying. You guys all do functionally the same thing. But just like I said, old money, you made most of it in the old country, whatever way it was. And then you brought it here and it got all fresh and laundered. Yeah. So they're like, okay, we'll do this finishing school just like we planned, and then you can marry her. Done. And done. Whisked away to Germany, married in Hamburg, back to New York with a baby on the way. Now, her life in California didn't exactly prepare her for life in New York. 
in California, temperate climate. New York, not so much temperate. Hot and sticky in the summer, cold, brutally cold in the winter. She wasn't quite made out of sturdy enough stock, she thought. Well, and the baby was born and died not long after her birth, which sent Annie into pretty much lifelong hypochondria. But the way she died was so sad. They they called it summer complaint at the time, but what it was was dysentery from spoiled milk. Refrigeration uh, is more important than you think. Yeah. So there's a term for what Annie sort of became. It's The French call it an invalide, which means a lady who is pretty much poorly or projecting an image of poorliness or weakness. You know, imagine the back of one's hand on one's forehead, this metaphorically. fainting couches were made for. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, her nerves and her fragile nature always had to be protected. So William moved his wife to the milder climate of California. Well, he wanted to make her happy. I mean, and that would do it maybe, you know, back in her, her stomping grounds, around her family, in a milder climate. Well, he indulged her and pampered her and worried about her, and he gave her this large retinue of servants so she wouldn't have to lift a finger, very common in their income bracket. And I have no proof or evidence of this whatsoever, but given her future daughter, this would be Lily's brainfulness in industry. I wonder if all this bed rest and then she got kind of into Chinese medicine and all this weakness stemmed from just having not a dang thing to do all day, ever. <laughs> Lounging around is fun for a day or two, Susan. It oh, is. I know. I got when I got put on bed rest with all of my kids. The first day I was like, sweet bed rest. The second day I was like, <gasps> oh, now see, I could pull a week. Do you just want to clean something or? Yeah. Take up, up a new skill or something. Yeah. She didn't even have seven seasons of Gilmore Girls to get through. Or okay. HGTV. That's what got nope. me through my my last two. I just sit there and watch it for hours on end. Other people doing stuff. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Lily, our Lily, was born and was very wanted indeed and very loved. Uh, according to her autobiography, though, she was extremely shy, which her parents did not get at all. Though, to their credit, they really did try their best. They decided she couldn't possibly be sent to school, not because of, you know, don't educate the girls and everything, but because she was full of anxiety whenever she left the house. Okay, so Mama's anxious and nervous. Papa's picked up on it, so he's anxious and nervous. She didn't stand a chance. Well, anytime Mama went shopping or calling, he'd pace around the house looking at his watch until she came back. And Lily would ask, Papa, what's wrong? You know, and he'd say, I, I just don't want Mama to be too ill when she gets back. And I'm like, what? That's why he and the whole household staff and eventually all the children treated her that way. She's like on a pedestal. Don't break her. Uh, uh, so fragile. So fragile. It's like, it's like the egg in risky business. You know, the egg on the Oh, mantle. the crystal egg. <laughs> yeah. 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 She was a crystal egg. Well, there's taking care of people and taking it too far, but Papa was full of good, and he was full of love, and I just think after several of these winners we just covered, father-wise, I, I just have to like him a whole lot. He's a product of his time. Yeah. He's a product of his place. And yeah. he was a kind man. Now, we've had some not good papas. Yeah, I don't think that her parents were negatively, I mean, other than all the anxiety that they bestowed upon an already introverted, quiet, shy kid. But curiously, given her relative lack of academic education, Mama made up flashcards and word games for Lily and most importantly, let her read whatever she wanted. Fairy tales or Mama's, what do we call it? Chiclet of the time? Yeah. I don't know. I, how many times do we say this? That the kid could read whatever she wanted and that's, 
I mean, and then they go on to do some really cool things in their lives. So there's a lesson in that. Well, she loved all the Little Women books, and there's a strong mother figure in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And naturally, Dickens. That's like the Stephen King serial novel. (laughs) I mean, everybody looks forward to Dickens. Um, All the classics, and then all of Papa's Adventure Time books, like Robinson Crusoe. My mom thought it was super inappropriate, but like, okay, whatever. How is that going to prepare you for the life that I have planned for you, which is an awful lot like the life that I led. But little blue-eyed, red-headed Lily also took up the family worry and would stare over mom while she was sleeping. But they didn't give up trying to bring her out of her shell. Maybe music might do it. I mean, poor things. They were just, (laughs) come on. They could not comprehend such a shy person. Neither of them had been so. Um, and how is she going to make it in society? I think she's like seven times. <laughs> um, but she loved playing the piano and singing. And in front of family are all these cousins that kind of served as her only playmates really fine. But a stranger comes in, forget it, you know, freeze up. I hated recital time too, Lily. I really did. Even as performance happy as I used to be. Ugh. But at eight, Lily was sent to a private school where she ran home in the middle of the day rather than read her paper in front of the class. So that was not a successful experiment. Yeah, it didn't work out. Well, at nine, Mama tried sending her to public school, but she had a strategy. She sent her two grades back, so everyone in the class was a lot younger than she was. And finally, that was some kind of success, and eventually she worked up to the right grade. Now, some say this is pandering or spoiling the child or I say she has an advocate here. Yeah, I agree. And not every child learns the same way. And Mama and Papa seem to be very good about treating all their children as unique individuals, which really made an impression on Lily, as you'll see later. I'm sure that's a significant challenge in a large family. You'll have to uh, let me know, because I only have the one. Too much thumping. Too much, please. And no jumping around up there, guys. They were actually pretty quiet. I'm sure. We'll be quiet, two ten-year-old boys. Okay, so we are trying to record this show. Just, mm, I may cut out what just happened right before <laughs> I'm talking. I'm rec- we're trying to record this show, and my face is like two dots and a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> now it's smiling. <laughs> I know. I'm just thinking about, like, when I said I was getting mad, and you're like, I couldn't tell. I'm like, it's real grumpy. <laughs> Evidently. I keep it all inside. Okay. All right. So anyway, so academically, she's finally in school. Socially, she is so not gifted in the social arts. She's still not, even though she's around kids her own age. She was terrified of the boys. She didn't like going to other girls' houses. And when the girls came to her house, what did she want to do? She didn't want to gossip and giggle. She wanted to show them her books. What little girl is going to want to, I mean. I don't know. Jet has some friends like that, actually. Okay, that's modern day. It's yeah. not like then. Yeah. You know, these little girls who are being raised up to be social butterflies. I guess especially in high school, because at 14, she did go to Oakland Public High School. Which was the alma mater of Jack London and Gertrude Stein, who both hated it. She finally shown, she found her niche, writing and poetry and stories for the school magazine. And her English teacher was this revelation, an attractive married woman and mother who had work outside the house that she loved. And... It was like her hero, kind of. And she did have another. It was her aunt, her Aunt Lily, 
who was a psychologist. So there were a couple professional women in her life. In fact, Aunt Lily, for whom our Lily was named, had gotten a divorce. That's the black sheep we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And a doctorate in psychoanalysis where she had been working with Sigmund Freud. I I just think that's kind of amazing. Didn't we just learn about Sigmund Freud's couch? What what podcast is that on? Uh, It was either The Memory Palace or 99% Invisible. 99% Invisible. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good show. I'm glad you told me about that one. Well, and then something happened. Three somethings, actually. After six daughters, Mama had three baby sons in as many years. And the littler girls were moved right into Lily's room. And really, the two oldest girls were now in charge of raising all the other daughters from here on in. Lily describes in her autobiography the extreme guilt she felt even stopping by the library after school. Because as the oldest girl, she was fully expected to relieve Mama of baby duty. Um, <laughs> both kinds, probably. <laughs> Baby duty and baby duty <laughs> if she wasn't at school. That's funny. Mm, that's not funny. <laughs> she was just convinced, at least in high school, that her fate was to stay at home, take care of babies, not her babies, <laughs> family babies, kids, and ultimately aging parents, which her father really approved of as proper for a gentlewoman. And he was pressuring her toward proper Victorian domesticity. She was despairing. Like, I'm just, oh, this is my fate. And he's clapping. Correct. Oh, I'm so glad you've chosen this fate. Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm, no, that's see, exactly. she has a problem communicating too. <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I don't want to. So the family spinster, as it was sort of looking like she was headed, but he did let her go back to visit relatives in New York City. And she stopped along the way at age 15 to go to A major event in 1893, and what would that be? The 1893 World's Fair. Um, so many cool things at the fair. How many times have we gone across the fair? (laughs) I don't know if she saw this, but there was what was considered to be the very, very first motion picture theater, a commercial theater. Let's see if I can say it again. The Zoopraxographical Garden, where you could see stop motion pictures of animals and people basically running, which kind of blew people's mind. That was at the fair. That was the very first time you could ever drink a PBR, mm, if that's your thing. Was that the Chicago World's Fair of 1893? I am almost going to bet you 100% Lillian Moeller did not Probably indulge not. in a PBR. Probably not. There was a brief flirtation with a possible career as a professional pianist. Pianist. Whatever. How do you say that? I think it's pianist. Sounds weird. I but know. during her senior year in high school, Lily came to her parents and confessed, literally, that's the word I read, confessed that she really wanted to go to college. College. What a disappointment. But not a surprise. No, because she loves learning things. She's she's very inquisitive and very smart. You can see the parents looking blankly at each other. Mama worried that going to college would prevent her daughter from getting a husband. And she was kind of half right. Literally half of this vanguard of women college students right about now, they didn't marry. Literally half of them, which is shocking because almost... I mean, the largest percentage of young ladies got married. For his part, Papa was worried about how it would look. In his mind and in his social circle, only women who had to earn a living went to college. And so people would think he was a bad provider. If he sent Lily to college, it would reflect badly on him. Lily said, this is how she convinced them, I'm going to train as a teacher so I could teach my own future children. 
And it seemed to crack their resistance. It's oh 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 that's plan. That's reasonable. Maybe they thought, okay, there's going to be fellas there. Maybe she'll meet somebody, you know, and it is college, so <laughs> fellas, fellas, she might meet a guy. Well, they agreed to a year at Berkeley. We go, oh, Berkeley, that's awesome. But you know, it was the it was the community college down the street for her. Well, um, <laughs> even the president of Berkeley, might I add, beamed approvingly on his female students, saying, "Isn't this a great training for motherhood?" Yeah. I'm just like uh, the president of your college thinks that's what you're. That's why you're there. It's you know. My mom actually dropped out of college because the instructors said to her, "There's nothing wrong with getting a marriage degree and MRS." Really? What year was that? Oh my gosh, um, fifties uh, in the fifties. And I want to say, not the college officials, might I stress, but friends of my mother's father said, "Why are you sending a girl to college? It's just a waste of money because she'll just get married." And my grandpa held firm, and he's like, "That's what she wants to do. That's what's going to happen." I think they started calling it a social degree. I think that's the term my mom used, a social degree. Um, when we got to college, it was, you know, they're oh, they're there for the MRS, you know, because there was still, I mean, even when I was in college, there's still a percentage of women that went for the sole purpose of finding a husband. I hate to say that. Well, Lily threw herself into campus life. She worked on the literary magazine again, and she got the lead in a play, which boggled everyone at I home. I know, right? That she rocked college. She, re- I mean, she's one of those people that just came into her own in college and, and academia. That's her place. Well, she made friends, not boyfriends, but as my son says, BSFs. That's boy space friends. There's also GSFs, <laughs> if you want to use that terminology. So even her BSFs said to her that they didn't consider her brains a handicap. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> How gross. That I'm just thinking about that. I hadn't read that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, ah. Uh. Okay, so theoretically, it was a whole new world. She was doing good. Her grades were awesome. But the Phi Beta Kappa Society, which is this invitation-only honor society, this is right before grad, decided at the last minute to take her name off the list and put a man in instead because, quote, he would need the bragging rights for employment purposes, and she wouldn't. That is crappy. I know. And we're talking about 1900 here, so just to put it in your heads for those of you who like dates. I mean, that's kind of exciting. It is. It is. Well, and she was chosen to speak at graduation anyway, and she finished in the top of her class and had a degree in English, and she also got a new name. Lily was so childish, and Lillian seemed more mature and sophisticated, and it suited how she felt about herself at the time. So she changed her name to Lillian. It seemed to her parents that Lily, Lillian, should I say, had spent way too many years at school, and which reminds me of the mother in The Help. Have you ever uh-huh. heard this? My daughter spent four years at college, and what did she come back with? A pretty piece of paper. <laughs> She's so mad that her daughter did not come back with a wedding ring. Yeah. Well, your sisters will need a chaperone to dances, Lillian, and we do need a nanny for the boys. Domesticity yeah. is closing in again. So at 22, Lillian argued to go to grad school in New York, where her relatives were there to keep an eye on her. <clears throat> Introduce her to men. I know. The parents were thrilled. They're like, Yeah. So she did end up at Barnard College, where the department head in the English department there flat out refused to deal with any woman student at all, openly. So she had to switch to another field. She had to switch because he refused to deal with women. And that's what she went there to study. So she had to switch to psychology, which did interest her because of her aunt, you know, who had studied with Freud, etc. And there's this is a very short period of her life. And there's only one real lasting effect that I can pick from those years. 
Um, there was a professor named Edward Thorndike that thought and taught in his classes that psychology was very important in industry. His point was, people are not machines as much as industry wishes them to be. Mm-hmm. And that little nugget did stick with her the rest of her life. Yeah, she grew it. Yeah. But we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, so on the whole, Barnard was a bus back to Berkeley where she got her master's in English in 1902. So Mama was content even though her daughter had this cockamamie idea of getting a doctorate, which is just like, I don't even get that. Because other than this strange obsession with school, Lillian was turning out to be the perfect model of young womanhood. She she looked and dressed like a Gibson girl. She went to the opera. She met friends for shopping. Her parents were happier that she was shopping than getting a doctorate. That's I just would like to throw that out there. She was confident and kind and very caring with all her small siblings and maternal and gentle and feminine and went calling. I mean, the mother could not find any other thing to object to. And I think it was, I wouldn't say it was an act, but I would say it was insurance. I'm going to do this because otherwise... There's going to be objections about the other part of my life. Right. Well, you have to do that a lot. You know, you take the good with the bad and and you kind of conform a little bit to get your way. And actually, the next thing that happens to her is totally along those lines because she wants to go on and get her doctorate. And so, okay, we'll send her on the grand tour. She needs more culture. It's a rite of passage for any young lady. So Lillian and two friends... At the age of 25, had to have a chaperone. The lady that was hired for this purposes took them on the way to introduce them to her Aunt Martha in Boston. And she was an interesting lady, self-made, had raised her children by herself and was very powerful and thought these young women might enjoy meeting her. And incidentally, Martha's son, Frank Gilbreth, a self-made man who had bailed on MIT at 17 years old to become a bricklayer's apprentice... That's not an usual career path. exactly. He took a few mechanical engineering courses, and then he invented time and labor-saving devices like scaffolds and conveyor belts and lifts and portable concrete mixers that he patented, and he halved the time it took to put up a mill or a factory or what have you. He did go back to MIT to build their electrical laboratory building. He had his own construction company. He was tall and attractive and successful and exactly the opposite of Lillian. I mean, he was extroverted and he joked around a lot and he'd traveled and he totally- was loud and funny and kind of, I don't know, like rude, rude blunt. Yeah. Maybe blunt. Yeah. It took her a while to understand that he was joking. Yeah, Frank's hardware store owner father had died when he was only three, and his mother raised three children on her own. She educated them at home when she couldn't find good enough schools. One of her daughters was a world-renowned botanist, and the other was a noted musician. I mean, Mama knew her stuff. Oh, yeah. She did a great job. Um, So Frank was a big guy, a big, maybe we could even say a big fat guy, hmm, but Edwardians, you know. Yeah, uh, barrel-chested. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There was definite... And obvious mutual attraction. Although she was speechless. I mean, literally speechless. She didn't know what to say. <laughs> well, there was also a boat waiting for the ladies on the dock. Yeah. So he said to Lillian, I'll be waiting for you on the dock when you get back. In four months. Probably not, right? You know. Okay. So she went, and her German cousins introduced her to her society, and she saw things and did things and danced. I mean, she didn't pine. But still... Her eyes did search for him on the dock when they got back, and there he was, standing next to her family, 
who had come to pick her up. I mean, chills. Isn't that so sweet? Hooray. Yeah. You know, even though her family thought that this guy was a little rough around the edges and pretty, you know, impulsive, there's a famous story in Cheaper by the Dozen about when he met them first, and out of nowhere, he he picked Lillian up and just put her on top of a bookshelf for no apparent reason. And, of course, the parents are like, um... And Lillian was afraid to move because there's expensive stuff on this bookshelf. And he goes, she just looks better up there. I just like looking at her. And the parents are like, you are a weirdo. And then... But she likes you, so we're torn. Well, it's one of those things where he's so weird that he actually turns the corner and becomes a curious bug specimen, kind of like, huh, this is... This is something. <laughs> and then there was a guy fixing the fireplace, a bricklayer, and he started taunting the guy. Like, ah, you don't know. You don't know how to do this thing. And here's this fat guy in nice clothes. The bricklayer finally lost it. And he's like, all right, then, let's see you do it. And, of course, he's the guy that invented the best way to do the bricklaying. And so he just builds the fireplace. And the bricklayer, like, punches him in the arm like, ah, you tricked me. You know, a little respect. And her father said, okay, that's the way that he wanted to show us that he can always provide for you. That's a leap for me. But Papa said he wanted to show us he was a self-made man and that he could work with his hands. And we we don't ever have to be afraid. That sounds like Papa justifying. But, okay, whatever. But he was a hit with the family, especially the little brothers, you know, oh my gosh. And on the day after Christmas, on the Golden Gate Bridge... Oh, how lovely is that? He asked her to marry him. Her! Not Papa. Lillian. He had a ring from Tiffany's. Already engraved with the date. What a confident dude. I know. And then he left to go back to work. (laughs) And he sent her manuscripts to proof and asked and listened to her advice about business things, advertising, getting new clients. He'd found a partner in business as well as in life. Mama thought this was completely unseemly, of course. She had no idea what happened in her husband's business. They did break Annie's heart, though, Mama's heart, by not having that big wedding that she had imagined for her first daughter. Yeah, her daughter insisted on this quiet family ceremony on a Wednesday night in the house. But you know what, Mama? You have five more daughters. You know, keep a hold of the Pinterest board. You can use it again. Um, after a super characteristic honeymoon at the World's Fair in St. Louis, oh how many times are we going to end up both at that World's Fair? I mean, it was the meeting place for everybody. I, I almost think. I don't know. Maybe we were in this era too much. No, that's probably true. No. But I just love how everybody that we talk about in this era kind of crosses over them. Yep. There is a curious tie to the St. Louis World's Fair. Are you ready for this? I'm I'm sitting. I'm ready. Okay. Do you know Meet Me in St. Louis? Meet Me in St. Louis. 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 That house in the 1950 movie is the cheaper by the dozen house. Wow. In the movie starring Myrna Loy. That house. They repainted it. That's funny. Okay. So anyway, at the World's Fair, they drink their first Dr. Pepper. Young love. I know. Young love. Uh, and Frank embarrassed her on the train. I love this story, too. She took her hat off, and she's trying to pretend that she'd been married for, oh, we're all married people, and she's trying to be all dignified. And he goes, good Lord, woman, you didn't tell me you had red hair. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, so embarrassed. He's like, I wanted everyone to look at you. That's right. He was so proud, and she's just, like, so embarrassed. Yeah, I kept reading all about their little quirks and idiosyncrasies, how they work together. I kept thinking, it is such a good thing that these two found each other. Because who else was going to tolerate his boisterous antics, and who else was going to tolerate her quiet timidity and respect 
her intelligence. I mean, he had asked her to submit to him a list of qualifications that she brought to the table so that they could ex- assess her assets and meet the world together as a firm. That's a quote. As a firm. Together. At this time, having a couple like that is pretty novel. Mm-hmm. Well, they set up house in Manhattan with Frank's mother and his aunt, or if you're Susan, his aunt. aunt. Kind of a weird scenario. Frank's mother, let's call her Martha to differentiate from Lillian's mama. Martha had charge of all the domestic affairs. And on the surface, and maybe even deep down for a while, this might have wrinkled. Like, God, really? How dare you? I'm the lady of the house. But when you think about it, if you have someone handle that whole side of life, the whole side of life, you have just freed Lillian to work on things and work with her husband in ways most women never had the spare time to do, even if they had the inclination to do it. Imagine how many episodes we could produce if we each had a Martha. Yeah, I think it's a win-win. It's definitely a win-win. I think um, that really did free her up to blossom. I think so. Well, I think it's time, now that we're all settled in Manhattan, to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll find out how that firm starts to operate. Lillian, at this point, they're married, and she set up house with her mother-in-law and her aunt-in-law. She's not having to cook, and she's not having to clean. Nothing is expected of her except to work with Frank, which is great because that's all she wants to do. When they got married, they decided that they were going to have an even dozen children. They thought that sounded like a good goal. All right. I don't know whose idea that was. I think it was Frank's, and I think she agreed to it. That's my story that I'm sticking to. (laughs) Um, She's helping Frank out with the business, and the first baby came along fairly quickly, named Anne. With the second baby, um, something happened back in California. There was the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. So she needed to get back, even though she was pregnant, she needed to get back from New York to California to check on her family. And, oh, while she's there, look it, they do need construction work. And, hey, guess what? We're in a construction business. So she was having a baby, and she's helping Frank get ready for business. She's going out and getting meetings set up and writing talks for him. Um, She refused to stay with her mom, which I think was a very wise move. But um, baby number two, Mary, came along. Frank was back and forth. His mom and aunt had moved out to California, but um, they kind of felt out of place there. So they moved back, and Frank and Lillian kind of were having this it's an intercontinental marriage. I, what do you call it? They're going from coast to coast, coast to coast, back and forth. Seems a little complicated. During all this, Frank had another idea. He thought Lillian should go back to college yet again and get a degree in industrial psychology. So she was handling all client communication for Frank's business. She was editing and rewriting Frank's manuscripts and dealing with publishers and writing all the speeches Frank delivered at universities uh, to get new clients. Four books in four years. Sounds hectic. I am so inferior. I know. This and is, she's having children. Yeah, this is even when there were, quote, just four kids. All girls, Anne, Mary, Ernestine, and Martha. And um, Frank said, Lillian, men can be self-made. And people will respect them for it. But a credential will be what gets you the same respect that I get just by being a man. Harsh, true, harsh. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Now, respect from whom, though? 
they ended up moving to a suburb in New Jersey. And the neighbor ladies <laughs> sure looked askance at old Mrs. Gilbreth going out to factories and construction sites and God knows where and leaving her children. It's the age-old working mom battle, I guess. But Lillian was a pioneer on this one. I'm with you, sister. So they moved to New Jersey, you see, to be closer to Martha and Aunt Gilbreth. I don't know if her last name's Gilbreth, actually. <laughs> Berkeley, they thought, had authorized her to do all her work remotely. Now, that'll come back to bite them. More on that later. Frank was moving his business away from construction itself and toward the new field of scientific management, or efficiency. He joined the American Society of Mechanical Engineers and took Lillian with him to the international meeting in London, where she did not go to the ladies' receptions with everybody else, but went with him to the actual meetings, the technical nitty-gritty. And she used a skill that many of us have had to use, unfortunately. I hope the younger listeners are free of this. I have no idea. Of downplaying her actual role in order to be accepted into the club. Oh, have we had to play that Scarlett O'Hara game. The big cheese in this field was a man named Frederick Taylor, a man who was admired by industrialists for his technique of timing workers with a stopwatch and basically bullying them into efficiency. Technically, he rewarded workers for reaching this artificially high goal, but anyone that didn't meet the goals, let him go. There's a thousand more just like him. Survival of the fittest. Now, you can see... Labor does not like this. Not at all. And Lillian doesn't like this. Lillian, and through her influence, Mr. Gilbreth, came at things from the other side, the human side. You can't make people into machines, said Lillian. Oh, sounds familiar. While other motion study experts were obsessing over reducing the time it took to do something and sort of blaming the workers, what, laziness? For not meeting the goal, not measuring up, Lillian thought, you know, if we improve the systems first and we change the environment to fit the people, we'll get the same results for the bosses without demoralizing everybody that works there. Novel concept. So Taylor and all his cronies were not buying what the Gilbert's were selling. We've never done it that way. Too touchy, too feely. Obviously, there's a woman involved with that situation. You know, gross. (laughs) Someone was, though, because Lillian herself and Frank were invited to the very first conference on scientific management, and Lillian so very wanted to mix and mingle, but she had a little baby. Her first son, Frank, was with her, and she was nursing him, and she really felt like she had to be super perif, like she can't be walking around with the baby. Yeah, yeah. And it was her first son. Frank didn't want the baby named after him, but she argued it. And she won. I thought that was interesting. Oh. Those little Frank Jr. Well, and you know, here's something cool. The chairman of that conference noticed. He noticed, and he respected her, and he invited her to close out the conference with, and he, this is the introduction he gave her. We have all been watching the quiet work of one individual who's been working along lines absolutely different from any other worker in the field of scientific management. And he invited her to close out the whole conference. I love that. that I do too. Recognize her this way. Like I notice that you're here. I you know I, see I get you. that biology yeah. is keeping you on the sidelines. That's pretty uncool. But <laughs> Yeah. Well in an industry like that where they had to be a little forward thinking and had to kind of invent the wheel in some regards, you know, I think that's good that the head of all this realized that you had to invent the wheel even farther to include women. So reducing motions, that's efficiency, but reducing (laughs) motions became the order of the day. Basically, you'd reduce the physical and mental fatigue for the workers, and that leads to 
better outcomes. The Gilbreths pioneered the use of video playback to analyze workers, and the workers came in, and they would do their jobs in front of this marked grid and a special clock. Uh, it was called a chronocyclograph. Okay, you know what I called all of this stuff? I mean, I understand it in theory, but I called it wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Who. <laughs> it's just... It's fascinating if you're into science and the details of it. Well, they divided all possible work, and this is just a language, so any work, into units that they called thurblings. That's kind of Gilbreth spelled backwards. Thurblings are still used, by the way. They still exist. Like, okay, for example, here's what happens. This is the level to which they analyzed every dang thing. So you're going to pick up a hairbrush. So there's search, that's one third, like when your hand reaches out, find when your hand touches the brush, select when your brain decides, I'm going to pick that up, grasp when you get hold of it, transport loaded when you bring it up to your head, positioning when you turn it. You have not even brushed your hair yet. <laughs> and you've done all these things. The analysis was so detailed, but what they would do with it would be, say in this instance, they might paint the brush yellow. That'll reduce search. That'll reduce the time your brain needs to find the brush. Or they might mount it in exactly the right height for the worker. That's you brushing your hair to reduce transport loaded. I mean, my goodness. And eventually, this is so cool. I've put some of these on the Pinterest surreal videos. Surreal. They would put lights on the workers and capture emotions kind of in the dark that way through time lapse photography. So cool. Because, see, here's the thing. If the lights made these smooth pathways, you could tell the motions are fluid. They're doing what they're supposed to. But if there's all these jaggedy back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that's something that's not in the right place. You need to move that piece of equipment. You need to change the height of it. You need to alter who's even doing the work. And then they timed the light to go with it. And so there's this whole mathematical formula that I don't even understand. But, oh, my goodness. Let's call it wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff again. (laughs) But the most important thing, at least from my perspective, is any worker called in to do these experiments was so invested in the process They could not wait. I mean, slap fights did not break out, but they begged to be the one chosen to be part of these experiments. They're part of our team. And Lillian would say that to the boss. These people are an integral part of our team here in this experiment. I love that. So her thesis, which she finally could buckle down to, called The Psychology of Management, was done. Hooray, with five kids in the house, you guys, five kids. (laughs) And she presented it, and it was rejected. Not on its merits, but because Berkeley hadn't authorized her to work remotely. The end. And you'd think that might be just about the most devastating thing that would happen to you after so much work, but it was not. Unfortunately, something even worse happened right after this. Little six-year-old Mary did not survive a case of diphtheria. So they lost one of their children, and it was just as crushing for them as it was for Mama Annie back before Lily came along. And for the rest of their lives, when they were asked how many children they had, they kind of stumbled with the question. So she was with them in spirit for the rest of their lives, but she was physically gone. Well, Lillian had been warned to stay away. You cannot go nurse your child. You cannot. You will take this back to all the other children. And diphtheria killed 20% of the kids that got it. You don't want to play those odds, Mm -mm. ma'am. You do not. Um, I don't think there's any cases in the United States anymore, by the way. I don't think there's a single case of diphtheria this past year. Well, don't we get immunized for it? Well, Well, those who immunize, yeah. So here's a good place just to say that there were never at any time 
Never. A dozen children living in the Gilbert house. So, of course, Lillian was the mother of 12, 13, maybe, uh-huh. if you count as stillbirth. So we'll get to that later. But Mary doesn't appear in that famous Cheaper by the Dozen book or the play or the movie at all. I played Martha, by the way, back yeah. in my day. And they got around the number thing by just referring always to, quote, the babies upstairs. Some indeterminate number of babies that would bring the total to 12. That's how they got around. It didn't fit the theme yeah. of the happy-go-lucky nature yeah, of the book. Yeah, talking about children dying, that's, yeah, that's too sad. And th- how much it impacted her, in her autobiography, it's mostly skipped over. She doesn't even talk about this period of time and Mary's death. That's how hard it was. It changed the family's life for good. They had to get away. They had to just get away from this house. They had to get away from the memories. Mr. Gilbert got a contract near Providence, Rhode Island, and so they they moved, fled, almost. And we now enter... The Cheaper by the Dozen Years. And if you only know Lillian from that book, which was written by two of her elder children, you're going to get the impression that she is this, what, benevolent presence in the house. Just some counterbalance to Dad, who had all these cockamamie madcap ideas. She was the quiet voice of reason in the background, and perhaps she was that. And here I'd like to encourage you to read that book. Mm-hmm. Just to get a perspective of how Lillian ran her household and their ideas on education. After all, they had so many children in this house. And they decided that all of them would go to college. So they wanted all their children to be educated. Well, and there is just a lot there. Process charge, which I bet a lot of you guys have a version of those in your own house. So, you know, did you brush your teeth, feed the cat, do your homework, like a checklist of chores? Um, weigh yourself, though. <laughs> every kid had one of these sheets. They had to weigh themselves every day. Well, they're scientists. I guess it makes sense. You got to have some data. Yeah. They had these novel methods of teaching. Five-year-olds could multiply two-digit numbers using this trick. Um, we'll put it on the website. It's actually kind of easy. If you can add and subtract, you can multiply two-digit numbers in your head. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> they use the children's natural curiosity to teach things like Morse code or the names of the stars and planets by painting on the walls of their lighthouse, summer house. I love the lighthouse. They, they had a summer house in Nantucket. They called it a sh- the shoe because um, the old woman in the shoe. But it was too lighthouses that were kind of put together and then the house was made between them. In the movie, they show it and it actually did look like that. Well, and they did these other kind of amazing things for the time. You know, Papa was supposed to be the boss. Then, but they had a parliamentarian system there. They had family meetings. They had a vice president. They had committees. They had like a purchasing committee that would handle the shopping, a utility committee that would monitor the utility usage, a gift buyer who handled all the celebrations. And if there was extra chores, the kids had to submit bids, and the lowest one got the job. Oh, how professional is that? So it's really impossible to go into too much of the utter novelty and coolness that's their family life here, especially when it's covered so well in that book. So, and it's not a hard read, but there's a lot of mentions in that book of, quote, when dad came back from a business trip. Now think about that for a moment. Who was at home? Who was at home playing the German records in the bathroom? Who was, in fact, supervising and, in fact, studying all of these procedures? That would be Lillian. Now, my husband works nearly all the time. And I'm super marshmallow when it comes to procedure. Like, hey, did you did you do your math page online? The Royals game's on. Forget that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, never mind. Oh, you don't want to sleep in your bed? You want to sleep on the couch? Okay. That's fine. Yeah. You know, but maybe you get better as you have more children, just out of necessity. In addition to all of those responsibilities, Lillian was working on another go at a doctorate, this time from Brown University. And she had a motion study lab in the house. 
not only for her own work with teachers and students and domestic sciences, that's housework, <laughs> home economy, but also for paying work with the unfortunately named N.E. Butt Company <laughs> that made braided trim for corsets and, and things. Um, suggestion boxes were her idea. Peer review, meaning like your compatriots can judge and help you with your job. There's people above you that are more experienced. There's people below you that you have to mentor. Flow charts were invented by the Gilberts for this company. Um, democratic meetings involving management and the workers. Mostly at home, though, because Lillian was pregnant nearly all the time. <laughs> but most of the processes at this factory were reduced in time by 50%. So basically you're saving 50% of your production costs. That is an epic thing to put on your resume. That is results that you can market. And what management wouldn't want that? You know, so it's a total win for the company to be using these, these strategies that she's coming up with. Now, how on earth you say did she sleep? Now, I'm not going to diminish her work at all here, but remember that we are dealing with a relatively wealthy Edwardian family here and one with a papa who was super motivated for his wife to get to her academic and business work and where grandmama was on hand and perfectly happy to run the domestic operation. Now, if you've read the Cheaper by the Dozen book, you've met the cook, Mrs. Cunningham, and her boyfriend, yes, I said it, boyfriend, Tom Greaves, the handyman, yardman, and fancy man, and roommate of Mrs. Yes. Cunningham. Now, I suppose you've already defied conventions all over the place. Like, why start being worried about that sort of thing now when the neighbor's eyebrows can't go any higher? That's right. But not in the book, governess Helen Douglas, the nursemaid, the assistant cook, four housemaids, a hairdresser, part-time, bless her, a laundress, and a whole group of gardeners. So there's a lot of hands on deck. And You're not doing it alone. And there's the kids who are all, who all have jobs in the house. I mean, they all have chores to do. So it's, you know, and they're looking out for each other in the same way that Lillian grew up with her siblings. So I want to just quickly talk about her schedule. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. I have it written down here, too. I loved. OK, listen, listen. <laughs> okay, so this is literally her routine, Monday through Friday. Two hours for breakfast and the grooming of the children. I like how they put in shifts. In shifts, yeah. Two hours for research and writing. A 15-minute break with the children before lunch. So then you've got lunch with the children. A half an hour nap. Note to self that was scheduled in every single day. Genius. And then after that, a half an hour with the youngest baby. So depending on the temperament of the baby, you can get a whole hour of a nap. Mm-hmm. Another hour writing, an hour for callers. Uh, callers? Oh, she's suddenly social. An hour with the children, a half an hour for this and that. Miscellany is what it's listed as. Mm-hmm. And in one hour for dinner before putting the little ones down, helping with homework, and reading bedtime stories. Um, she must have cranked out the work. I mean, I know efficiency and streamlining jobs is her thing, but in the time that she has allocated to doing work, work. So here's something I think is hilarious. Frank, Mr. Galbraith, was very, very protective of his wife's time. Mm, protective of her time. That he could use, yeah. <laughs> I should say. And he actually made an interruptions chart. And if you wanted to interrupt mother and it's not on the schedule, you had to write your name down that you interrupted her. And you knew who the worst offender was? Tom Greaves, who would come in <laughs> to say, oh, Bill's going to interrupt you or whatever. And he would totally tattle, not realizing his interruption was way bigger than 
anything the child would have done in the first place. A kid's going to come in and tell you they threw a rock in the window. Yeah. What? What? Yeah. Then the kid has to come in and tell her he threw a so rock Tom in the window. So Tom Graves had the most numbers on that interruption chart, and he never felt the least bit sorry about it either. But after two years, hundreds of hours of field work in local elementary schools, she was done with her dissertation, which was now called Some Aspects of Eliminating Waste in Teaching. The men motion study experts had not bothered with teachers or housework were men of science. That women's work is all based on feelings, isn't it? Too woolly. Yuck. I'm not going to discuss this. <laughs> yeah. Lillian Gilbert brought the scientific method and some respect to a whole new frontier. Education for now. We'll get to the home later. But now, Mrs. Gilbert was Dr. Gilbert. And the president of Brown University praised her by saying he did not know another woman in America who's achieved what she had done in the realm of study and at the same time fulfilled every duty of motherhood in her constantly enlarging home. And kind of the other thing that she's doing, which is a huge contribution, is she's making Frank and the world think and feel like he was in charge and everything was going according to his plan, regardless of whose idea the plan was. So she was doing that thing that women of the era were almost trained to do and and ruling silently without the husband noticing. That's That was an accomplishment at the time. Yeah, you saw it in operation in my big fat Greek wedding, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also, oh, yeah, maybe not at the time. Maybe all time. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I think it's an all-time situation. I know, trying to be kind. Now, one thing that did happen is, right after graduation, Lillian gave birth to a stillborn child, and the Gilbreths kept it completely secret because they did not want people to point to that and say, this is why, this is why women should not work outside the home, this is why they should not spend all their energy studying, this is what you get. So they had to keep that and the resulting grief of it completely to themselves. Unlike with Mary, they they couldn't let that get out. Which, how hard could that have been? That had to be miserable. So, on a happier note, Dr. Gilbreth, huh, I like saying it, I Dr. Know. Gilbreth's official credentials opened up a lot of doors for the family business. Listen to this client list. Major League Baseball. Oh, yes, Major League mm-hmm. Baseball. Kodak, the Ford Motor Company, Filene's Department Stores, Remington Typewriters, Erie Steel, U.S. Rubber. In addition, Lillian, mostly by herself, was running a school to train motion study experts. And people would come to the house and they'd pay handsomely to do it and to learn how to do exactly what they've been doing in other industries, to do it in their own industry. And Lillian, mostly by herself, was writing book after book for publication. Her voice made the work understandable to the average reader. Her husband laughed and said, you are so gabby. He he liked things to be very technical. And she's like, how many people do you want to read this book? Yeah. That is not going to play. You've got to translate it for the mind that might be reading this. To make it almost conversational so that people would learn in a more enjoyable manner. And Lillian, mostly by herself, although not entirely, you know, birds and bees being what they are, presented the world with babies eight and nine. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. Good job, Lillian. So she's writing all these things that Frank's name is going on. And if her name ever went on anything, she had to use her initials. She couldn't, even though she had all these credentials and all this experience, she couldn't use her name. She couldn't say, she had to say L.M. Gilbreth. I do not know what it's going to take. 
Well, World War One arrived, and though the Gilberts began with a sort of characteristic, you know, here's how we can adapt factory work for the disabled man who can't go fight. So we, we can make him a valuable part of the war effort. Or here's how we can streamline the home to reduce waste so we have more to send to our boys. That was kind of definitely in their wheelhouse already. But Frank got the urge to get on right on in there. I mean, a book I read called it a midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and he, now Major Gilbreth, having made a special trip to the White House to insist he could be helpful to the war effort, went off to make motion study films of soldiers which still exist. I'm going to put those on the Pinterest board. But before he actually could go off, this is the famed um, tonsil party happened. This is in the movie, and I know we're trying to make you not think of her as in the movie, but it really did happen. It was a mass tonsillectomy, and they did chart the efficiency of it. For those of you that haven't read the book or seen the movie, or seen the movie, almost everyone needed their tonsils taken out. And oh... Mr. Gilbert thought this was a fine opportunity to study a whole bunch of nearly identical surgeries because you don't get these kind of opportunities every day. That's right. And you could set up the film in the house and um, it would be just fine. And, of course, the mother is like to have a heart attack because you don't want to see even one of your children getting a tonsillectomy. And here they all, most all are. Martha escaped, or she thought she was going to escape. Unfortunately, she went under the knife with a full stomach, and she suffered worse than anybody, I can tell you, yeah. from playing her in the play. Oh. <laughs> she was allowed to eat because no one thought her tonsils had to come out, but they thought she was Ernestine. Yeah, they mixed up the kids. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, it turns out he didn't get his films because the guy left the lens cap on. Wah, wah, wah. But if you think about this, get this. Anytime you see, I don't know, you might watch medical procedurals when you see the guy go scalpel and a nurse hands him a scalpel. And the way that the tools tool. are lined up, the instruments are lined up. That's a Gilbert innovation. Mm-hmm. That is Thurbling's at work. So ultimately it paid off, but at the time it was nothing more than ridiculous comedy. Yeah, so there's a war going on. He's getting ready to go off to Oklahoma, but they stopped to do this mass tonsillectomy study, which impacts modern medicine. So off to glory, maybe. But Frank became ill. So ill, in fact, that Lillian was summoned to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, as his next of kin. Yeah, let that sink in. So she's at home taking care of the home fires and taking care of the business and taking care of the children. And suddenly she has to leave. To take he, care of her husband. He was in grave danger. Grave mm-hmm. danger. Oh, yeah. Um, pneumonia, uremic poisoning, a resulting heart weakness, months and months and months of being on the brink. And Lillian had to let some things go. She'd spent all her time by her husband's side, and the client business had really fallen by the wayside. And the doctors warned her that his heart was compromised now. His heart was vulnerable. Though, of course, Frank acted as if nothing dire had happened. Of course not. As soon as he could jump up out of bed, well... As close to jumping as he could get, he did. Work, work, travel. Stay awake. Do more. This is just one more major thing on Lillian's plate, though. I mean, two more if you count the family finances slipping, and three more if you count baby number 10, John. We should count him. Oh, yeah. But she made Frank carry around a heart stimulant at all times because he could not be trusted to take it easy. So he had to be trusted to put the medicine in his take. He had to be trusted to take the medicine. Hmm. That's called foreshadowing. So Lillian and Frank decided that new business was going to be easier to come by in New York. It's better for travel anyway as a jumping off place, too. 
And so off they moved to a seven-bedroom house in Montclair, New Jersey. Still not enough bedrooms. Although I think there were servants' quarters that don't count as bedrooms upstairs. And they all didn't go in the car. <laughs> like in the movie, they all pile into the big car and they all go together and realize some piled in the car. But uh, some went on train, including Lillian. The smart ones went by train. Well, it's 68 Eagle Rockway. And I, before I did a little research, I looked on Google Street View and I couldn't reconcile pictures of the old house that I have with any of the houses on that street. Well, turns out it got demolished. There is no more that house. It's not there anymore. There is a house at 67 Eagle Rockway, Mm -hmm. but that particular house, the Gilbert house is no longer visitable. So that is bumming me out. The financial situation with a lot less business and now this new mortgage meant that the days of all that household help were over. They still had Mrs. Cunningham and of course, grouchy old Tom, but grandma, oh, Martha died shortly after the move and Lillian took it very, very hard. If you think about it, she'd spent more time with Martha than with Frank. I mean, seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, the older girls had to step up a lot. And thus began the lifestyle experiment, that elimination of what Frank called wasted motions. The one best way, the fastest way to take a bath, for example. With so many kids, I think regular old dads would love the reduction in hot water <laughs> money. Um, count in Latin while you do your jumping jacks. Follow your schedule. Wear your uniform. Is this District 13 in the Hunger Games? <laughs> it kind of is, but it was kind of necessary. It, it wasn't really a uniform. It was just that they bought all the clothes really similar with hard-wearing fabrics so they could be passed down. That's all. It wasn't really a uniform, but, like, things that had to be ironed, fashionable clothes. Ain't no one got time for that in this house. No. So, older kids were responsible for the younger ones, specific younger ones, I think. Um, and the kids helped a lot with the motion study work, too, which is not really mentioned in Cheaper by the Dozen. Analyzing, filming, even playing the parts of workers for the purposes of study. I mean, there's a lab in the house. You might as well use the <laughs> lab. No, they're not lab rats. But well, you might, yeah, kind of. Lab assistants, how about we call them that? The children often later said that Dad saw his kids as, quote, a team, and Lillian saw them all as individuals. Lillian remembered from being the oldest in a big family what a big deal it was to be made to feel special. And from what they've said about her, she succeeded. She always had time to listen. Reporters started to come to the house, largely due to Frank's home movies. The PR movies were shown as newsreels at the local theater. Their children were embarrassed in social media long before that it became a thing. <laughs> I saw you using the typewriter. And they'd always play things back in fast motion for effect. And it like, ah, oh, they were so embarrassed. These reporters noticed Mr. Gilbreth is running around, pointing stuff out. We're moving fast, moving fast. And mom, Lillian, just radiated serenity and calm and femininity. She was probably tired, you guys. <laughs> but she was seen as embodying the ideal woman and the ideal woman's life. You know, this big house with some servants. And, and a whole bunch of children. And a whole bunch of children. And she's just calm and serene. And this is so interesting to me. She was so much admired by other women for her utter respectability. And otherwise, these women would have been shocked by her work. But all this motherhood seemed to give her a pass. Yeah, and it, but it looked like she had the motherhood thing down. So she had a little hobby on the side of her her professional mm-hmm. life. I'm speculating, but... Well, speaking of that, babies 11, Robert, and 12, Jane, were born in Montclair. And then Lillian became very... Very, very sick. So ill with something unspecified. It was probably indelicate. 
that she had to have an emergency hysterectomy. So instead of traveling to England to deliver this landmark speech to the Society of Women Engineers, she had to stay home in bed gravely ill. And I did find this ironic. This whole time, she hadn't let baby slow down her pursuit of professional success. And it was the end of that whole process that derailed her for a while. So it was like the opposite of what most people would experience, kind of. But she's 46 at this point. That's, I mean, that's significant in and of itself that she was still, you know, having children to this age, you know, and that so many of them survived. Well, another opportunity came her way. The Gilbreths had been invited to the awesomely named World Power Conference. I know. I want that t-shirt. <laughs> the older daughters could keep things ticking while they were gone, and they started making plans. And Lillian thought of a special present to give Frank for his 56th birthday. She was going to write him his biography. Like, she didn't have enough to do already. She thought she'd start to write his biography on the sly and surprise him. She even titled it, The Quest for the One Best Way. And she finished it. Now, I say I have given my husband some books, too, for his birthday. But I dress my son up as characters from my husband's favorite movies. Or I'll dress my son up as his dad. I love these pictures. They're just beautiful. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. post a couple of them. You should. Ones. Oh, you definitely should. But I didn't write my husband's biography. Yeah, I wouldn't write Sorry, my honey. husband's. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> Five days before Frank and Lillian due to head out for the big World Power Conference on June 14th, 1924, Frank called home from the train station and he asked Lillian to check on something in his desk. I'll wait, he said. I'll wait. And so she went and checked on it in his desk. And when she came back to the phone, no Frank. And so she just assumed his train came. He had to bail. You know, no big deal. A neighbor was sent to break the news to her. Frank had died right there in the phone booth. From a heart attack. Massive heart attack. It probably happened so fast he couldn't have reached for his medicine. That's how fast it happened. But his last words to her were, I'll wait. I'll wait. Oh, my gosh. Change the name of his biography. He was 56. Yeah, he was relatively young. Keep in mind, his father had died very early, too. Frank was only three when his father died. Yeah. This seems like a pretty good spot to take a break. And when we come back, we'll see what Lillian does with her life without Frank. Lillian has just lost her husband of 20 years, Frank, to a heart attack, and she has to deal with everything. She has to decide what to do going forward. Well, the first thing she did, as per his wishes, she donated his brain to Harvard for study. The first female pathologist named Dr. Mertel Canavan was the one that removed his brain for study and put it in a jar. I think he would have liked that. I think so, too. She held a simple funeral. Again, per his request, flowers were waste. You know, too yeah. much foo for all was a waste. And then she convened the older kids to a meeting where they all voted whether or not Lillian would go ahead and go to those conferences and give those speeches. Mama, Grandmama, back in California, had offered to take all or some of the children off Lillian's hands during this time. And that was kind of one of the votes. Do we stay together or do we disperse? So... At the meeting, they voted that she should go on ahead, and she did. Less than five days after her husband had died unexpectedly, she was on her way to Europe to continue their work alone. Because they had some sort of uh, fame beforehand, 
Upon his death, people wanted to know how she was going to do it. She was this hybrid engineer, psychologist, scientist, mother with no partner. She was quite a curiosity. Maybe this would help her business increase. She figured, well, business won't slow because I'm going to be seen as the... You know, I, I have some publicity now. I'm going to be seen as the expert that I am. But unfortunately, it didn't quite work out like that. And the family did have to make some financial cuts. Um, there was some insurance money that kind of filled the gap until business picked up. But they had to cut back. Um, the college students that were in expensive colleges had to transfer. She sold almost all of her jewelry. Well, at first, it did look like it was all going to work out. She was invited to give speeches here, honorary memberships there. But all the glory did not translate into any gold. It seems that, I'm sad to say... All this respect that she had been held up in might have been, what, just politeness to Frank. You know, is she the typist? Is she the assistant? You know, rather than genuine respect for her own brain, uh, the former clients in industry didn't re-up. New customers couldn't get past the skirts or uh, whatever. They wanted the boss who was gone. They wanted the boss even that she had a doctorate. I mean, I do not know what a girl has to do to get respect. Robert Wood Johnson, the second... The vice president of Johnson & Johnson had a suggestion. Could she teach motion study to some of his managers? He'd even send them to her so she could be home. I love this, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. And a few other networked-in VPs joined up. I don't know if it was her reputation or Robert Wood Johnson's strong-arming. Um, I know there were some people from Borden, mm-hmm. um, the milk people. <laughs> and at a $1,000 a student, which is 14000 per student today. Some of these first students were even women, too, which was amazing. These first students who played ball with the kids who interrupted and who were willing to eat meals with the family and who saw how this all integrated into their family life were so inspired and so vocal about their experiences that Lillian got more than twice as many the next year, some from as far away as Japan and Germany. One woman student, whose first name is Eugenia, just like in The Help, second mention of The Help. (laughs) Um, She convinced her bosses at Macy's that Lillian held the key to motivating both the mostly female sales staff there and the mostly female customers. She's a psychologist and a mother and is familiar with industry. You are never going to find that again. Macy's was a client that Frank had tried to get and was unsuccessful, but she was able to get them for the same for what Beckett just said. Um, She was a woman, and so she kind of went... How would you say it as a undercover boss? Oh yeah. Um, in Macy's and she worked the floor and she found, you know, how the job happened. So she was able to look at the job of the sales clerks as a sales clerk and as a customer. She was able to consult with Macy's about ways not only to improve the efficiency of the sales clerks, but to make them again, this is bringing back her psychology. Um, experience is to make them happier. Happier employees are more productive employees, and she was able to do that at Macy's. Lillian really hammered home the fact that one-size-fits-all would not work in small groups. They had to be like a family. The relationship between the members could sink a team or strengthen it. Not only that, she laid out the store differently so the customer could get around, so things flowed more logically. Now, we've had window dressers or visual merchandisers for years. You've all seen Mr. Selfridge. That's fair enough. But the practical, boring, some may say, (laughs) simple layout of the store could impact a customer's psychology. Marketing, presentation of the goods. Soon, retailers all over the place and product companies were calling her in what I like to call the, all of our customers are ladies. Hey, you're a lady. 
method? Yeah, I guess I am. So she was able to do um, studies and find out the psychology behind women's shopping habits. Women were responsible for 85% of the money spent by the average household. So you're leaving a lot of money on the table if you don't value the input of those customers. Here's the funniest industry thing that I... Okay, Johnson & Johnson, again, was having some trouble marketing this new product of theirs. It's like a sanitary napkin. And the bosses, when they were trying to explain to Lillian... What they were asking her help with couldn't even formulate the sentence. It was so uncomfortable and so embarrassing to talk about sanitary products. And their faces got red and they couldn't get the words out. And they danced around it until the point where she's like, what are you talking about? And they finally said, we just can't get women to talk to us about these, these, you know, these gross Things like, I wonder why I wouldn't talk to you about this. And so Lillian, you know, patted their heads. Bless you. Yes, I'll take care of it. And she hired all women to go talk to all women and surprisingly got better data. (laughs) And therefore, Modess, one of the very first commercially available sanitary products for women, was in their tagline, designed by women for women. Well, that woman was Lillian Gilbreth. The things that the, she she is affecting all she, kinds of she things. is and she's kind of finding you know her way with Frank he was all about finding the one best way but she was a little more lax on that and that there might not just be one best way but it might be one best way for this person is different than one best way for that person and she kind of looked at rules were made to be broken in to some regard, which was kind of almost at 180 from what Frank was preaching. All of that focus on feminine subjects, and um, she was the first one to bring up flex time, which was kind of amazing to me, <laughs> like job sharing and flex time, because she had to explain to people that working women also still had things to do at home, which was incomprehensible to married men who did jack when they got home. Do you know what I mean? I know. I just think, I mean, the stereotypical man coming home, I know you're not all like this, but they sit down on the couch and pop a beer, Edith, give me a beer. Well, no, I mean, in this time and in this place, men and sons did not often help in the kitchen Yeah, no, no, no. So, um, So these incomprehensible to the male titans of industry and retail things were paying the bills. The depression made the economy go into a tailspin, and Lillian reinvented herself again. She'd made women's work scientific in the schools and now in the marketplace, but where were nearly all women working? At home. Even those 25% of married women who worked at a job, too, because, like we said, most men of this time were not, how shall I say, not down for laundry. No, no. So she was able to take a lot of her um, management and efficiency studies and turn them towards the house. She did a scientific study and determined that ironing boys' shirts was important, but not necessarily because by the time they got to school, they were already wrinkled. So take ironing off the table. Thank you. She found that chores like dishwashing were detestable because they were solitude. You know, you had to do them by yourself. So she made it encouraged um, homemakers to make it a more social chore in the house. And I love, I don't know if this was just her not liking domestic chores, but she found that it was more efficient to send laundry out, more efficient and less expensive than to do it at home. Yeah, way to prove that your way is best, you know. Well, at first her work was very practical. Like she designed a very efficient customizable kitchen to save steps and eliminate fatigue. Now, if you've ever been told, say you're in Ikea or wherever, about the work triangle, you know, 
stove, fridge, sink, mobile cart that you can move to where you need it. That's Lillian Gilbert. Have you ever used a step trash can? The kind with the foot pedal. Of course you have. That's hers too. Have you ever put something in the shelves inside the door of your refrigerator? That's her too. Little did you know how much you owe to Lillian Gilbert. So famous did Mrs. Gilbert's kitchen practical, what she called it, become that a photo crew wanted to come take pictures and write a story about the famous Mrs. Gilbreth and her famous efficient kitchen. Well, there's several problems with this, one of which her kitchen was still very old style. It was giant and it was filled with furniture. It's not filled with cabinetry. Um... Susan can attest that my kitchen is not full of cabinetry. It doesn't have any. So there's no modernization at all. And she didn't know how to cook. One of the dishes her kids called it dog vomit on toast. That's the kind of cook she was. They didn't really let her do it very often. So there was a quick and complete remodel, practically overnight, and Lillian anxiously trotted out that one cake recipe she thought might not fail on her. I mean, it's good to have one dish that you make. Crisis averted. (laughs) I love this, by the way. She really did not see the humor in making such horrible food and yet being so admired for her domesticity, revered even. Here was this ideal mother knows best, but she was absolutely not the homemaker of her reputation. She was a problem solver. She was an engineer. Designer of appliances and systems and techniques, but no Martha Stewart, though America sort of bestowed the crown upon her brow. One of her daughters said if she could get into a man's world through the kitchen door, that's what she was going to do. And that's exactly what she did. All of this practical things, all of these inventions and systems and direct woman-to-woman help got parlayed into more theoretical global behavioral advice. She advised President Hoover on women's role in the economy. She gave radio addresses like the Internet publicity campaigns of today, urging women to evaluate the companies you buy from, reward the ones who were operating ethically during the Depression, not exploitative. Your dollars spent carefully could make a real difference in the nation's recovery. She told women that they mattered. She added legitimacy and importance to everything they did and made society see how vital it was. Where it really, as we covered in a different episode, reached its fame, its apex in the 1950s. Um, remember, that was the cult of domesticity mm-hmm. in the yeah. 50s. Oh, definitely. Although I will say, and this is jumping ahead a little, that she cautioned women in the 50s with all those labor-saving devices, do not be tricked into letting everyone raise your standards. You use that extra time for yourself. You do not use that extra time to clean more and ra- you know, raise the level of cleanliness in your house. Well, she, she same, along the same lines, I mean, even during the Depression, she was encouraging housewives to spend money wisely, but to allocate a little bit for themselves, you know, to take care of themselves, you know, obviously not to the extent that they were doing before the Depression, but to not deny themselves every single thing because their happiness was tied into the success of the family. And therefore the community, and therefore the nation. That's really far thinking, I think. I think so, too. Like the put on your oxygen mask thing. See, Lillian's such a pioneer. At the time, she also told wives not to nag and whine, because males that were unemployed or were fiscally strapped were already in a bad place, and to nag at them wasn't going to solve anything. It was just going to make them even more miserable and make the whole family more miserable. I want to say, I don't, I didn't write this down, but I want to say like a million and a half men abandoned their families during the depression and 
basically left unskilled wives and daughters at home to run a house by themselves. So a lot uh, of involuntary entry into the workforce happened during the Depression also. Which helped. I mean, that's what she did, too. You know, getting women into the workplace and helping from the business side get the women into the workplace and make them efficient and good employees. So as horrible as the Depression was, it was good for her, you know, to get her word out and to get her mission out. She was offered a teaching position at Purdue University where she struck up a friendship with another female member of faculty. That would be... Amelia Earhart! (laughs) Yeah, episode 39. Uh, Lillian was the only female professor in the School of Mechanical Engineering. So now, are are these kids still around? We haven't mentioned them in a while. Uh, All 11 of Lillian's children graduated from college. College was a bit cheaper than... I worked out that Vassar, with room and board, was about $17,000 a year in today's money. Isn't that a huge accomplishment? I mean, that fact alone also held up her reputation. You see... The children of working women turn out fine. Don't be silly. All the daughters got married. Is that what they want to know? Most of the boys were war heroes. Is that what they want to know? Her daughter Ernestine said, and I think this is really validating, to see your own mother able to work all day and then come home and suddenly snap from a businessman into a most understanding and sympathetic mother makes one wish it were possible for more people to do the same. So her children, who could have, in the global sense of things, been very abandoned feeling. Right. Sure. Oh, yeah. We're behind her. I, you know. Yeah. And then as soon as they all moved out, she sold the house and downsized. She sold the house and demolished it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now, Tom Greaves was a good enough cook, but he was no man of miracles. I mean, there hadn't been money for the house. The roof was leaking. Yeah. That it it just was cheaper to demolish it. So she had it taken down and moved to a smaller place. (laughs) It's like no boomerangs for her, but the whole goal when they were raising their children and it's, it's, I, it's mine. It's my battle cry is independence is the goal. Once they graduated college, they were done. They were out of her realm of responsibility. And it's, that's what happened. Well, her honors here are nearly endless, at least 23 honorary degrees. She was an advisor to FDR during World War II. All of those engineering associations that had snubbed her back in the day were suddenly showering her with awards, which she accepted more graciously than I would have. Yeah. I, I would, I would just, I would have, mm. she served on the board of the WACs. And the WAVES, which are military organizations for women, kind of parallel to... They're non-combat jobs in uniform, and they're paid. Mm -hmm. They're voluntary in that you sign up for them. She also served on the board of the Girl Scouts for quite a long time, and was on the Civil Defense Advisory Council under Harry Truman. Also, I was watching MASH the other day, weirdly, because my dad, that was his favorite show, and it had come on, and I thought, because I was researching Lillian Gilworth at the same time, during the Korean War... She was largely responsible for the accommodations of the women nurses in those MASH units. Like all the special things that had to be done to accommodate the different responsibilities and the different requirements of having females in a combat zone. She was responsible for advising the president on that. I thought that was amazing. She had a very big platform and she was so busy. The thing that kept kept striking me is, I mean, even she worked hard when the kids were in the house, but as soon as they left, she had so much more energy, even though she was older, to crank into her into her job and into her work. I and mean, she was still speaking and she was teaching at Purdue. This is age 63. An eight-day schedule included four colleges, 10 lectures, two 
all-day meetings, a bunch of um, shorter ones, two days in Washington discussing housing projects, a stop to see her son in Princeton, and several planning sessions. I mean, she got to the point, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but as she got older, the kids would ask her, you know, Mom, Mom, don't you think it's time to slow down? So she would start to lie about how busy she was. Well, and then Cheaper by the Dozen came out and hardly mentioned that she worked at all. Now, Cheaper by the Dozen was written at first, her daughter Ernestine, who we've seemed to be talking about quite a bit, but um, she was actually one that not only went to college, but she was a formal retail buyer. But um, when she got married and settled down in the suburbs, she just took to writing, and she wrote this little novel about the family, um, and she tried to shop it around, and it was unsuccessful. She brought it to her brother Frank, and he kind of took a look at it and edited it up a bit, and his, his motto was, um, if it isn't all the way it happened, it's the way it should have happened. <laughs> and it was published and it was very popular. As a matter of fact, it was so popular that Hollywood came knocking. Frank and Ernestine kind of had to launch a campaign with the other kids to get them all on board. The kids, you know, they're all adults <laughs> at this point, but the kids. Um, they were worried that Hollywood would change the story even farther than Frank and Ernestine had. Um, they thought that the family would turn out looking ridiculous and that Lillian would come off as cold and calculating or wacky. They were really worried about how their mom was going to come off because they knew that even in the book, her all of her professional accomplishments were glossed over. I do wonder what she thought of that book. I do wonder. I think it's telling. The sequel is called Bells on Their Toes. The dedication says, To Mother who deserved better treatment. Because really, in Bells on Their Toes, it refers to mother working and going on business trips, but nowhere to the degree that it really happened. I think that these books, Cheaper by the Dozen and Bells on Their Toes, kind of altered her reputation and altered the way she was seen in history because we all know her as the mother from Cheaper by the Dozen, but we do not know all that went on in the background. There's this surface of respectable feminine motherhood, but underneath it, it is so much work, like the duck's feet paddling like crazy. I mean, she was a lecturer at MIT at the age of 86. But everybody remembers her from a 1950 movie that, and actually when it came out, it came out to lukewarm reviews, but it was the fourth highest grossing film of the year. So the book was extremely popular because at that time, you know, the early 50s, people were just gobbling up this idealized Americana woman, and that's what they saw in the perfect family, and that's what these books were all about, and that was their... You know, the reason for their popularity. Well, Lillian kept traveling, speaking, advising, and being showered with honors all the way through her 80s. Ultimately, ill health led her first to move in with her second daughter, Ernestine, and her family in Arizona, and then to a round-the-clock nursing facility where she died on January 2nd, 1972, at the age of 94, after an almost 50-year solo career after her husband had died. And the truly sad part is the last few years of her life, she was just really unaware of what was going on around her, really unaware of her accomplishments. You know, she barely recognized her kids when they came in to visit her. Um, it's, it's just such a sad finish to a woman who led such a dynamic life. She filled her life with things. 
for sure. One thing she did not at least overtly fill her life with, although she sure was there for all of it, the suffrage movement, mm-hmm. and or she was also there for the 1960, you know, second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. So she never really did get involved in the suffrage movement. She may have served as an inspiration though, because think about that. The younger women in the suffrage movement, you know, she Lillian didn't wait around for legislation. <laughs> she just made her path, but not everyone has the ability to make their own path. But what she did do is kind of shine a little beacon. She didn't mean to. She had no intention of being an example for anybody, but maybe her daughters, I think. She was just being herself. But women would look to her similar to the way she had looked at her English teacher so far back. A married woman who has all these children, who has this career outside the house, who gets respect, who can handle it all, who can balance it all. That could be for me, too. That translates from the suffrage movement all the way through feminism and the increasing amount of women coming into the workforce after that idealized homemaker 50s. I just think it's so kind of crazy that there's no direct involvement, but there really isn't. Well, in in her marriage, I mean, the marriage they had, it was really a 50-50 partnership. And they both looked at it that way going in. You know, and that's something that we strive for these days. And we're a lot closer to than we were any time in her life. But she just did it. I mean, that was just the way she was. Well, she's uncategorizable, really. Mm -mm. Mother, professor, efficiency expert, teacher, advisor, political, operative in some cases, economist, inventor. Industrialist. I mean, you know, I know she just kept, yeah, she just, just kept doing her thing. It wasn't that she had this career goal. I want to do this. She just did it. So, um, that ends the life of Lillian Gilbreth. Let's go on to some media. Movies. Obviously, you need to go see uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, the 1950 version with Clifton Webb and Myrna Loy. Myrna Loy is epic in this movie. She is. Just epic. He's kind of over the top, kind of a caricature, but she's really good. And then Bells on Their Toes was just two years later. It was actually written before Cheaper by the Dozen was actually out. They started in on the sequel. I personally, which one do you prefer? I know you were in Cheaper by the Dozen. I prefer Cheaper by the Dozen because I was in Cheaper by the Dozen. And I prefer Bells on Their Toes because even though they created a character to be the man in her life. Oh, you're talking about the movie. Yeah. The man isn't in the book. Oh, I know. The movie. I'm talking about the movies. We're just talking about the movies here. Oh, Oh, oh. which one did you like better? Oh, she really doesn't. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I Sorry. thought it looked, it gave a little better representation, Bells on Their Toes did, of the challenges that Lillian was faced with and, you know, that she did have a career. I mean, that it, that's part of the story. And there is a third book. I don't believe there's a movie at all. There's a third book that I thought I had a handle on. Frank had written it, I think perhaps full of guilt (laughs) at how much he had obfuscated his mother's work record in the previous two books. It's called Time Out for Happiness, and it really does focus more on how they managed around mother's work schedule all that time, and it's more um, true to what really happened. And I think he meant it as a present for his mother. It's out of print and hard to find. And I thought I had my hands on it, but it, it didn't end up making it here in time. So if you can get a hold of it, it's just by Frank Gilbreth, not Ernestine. Time out for happiness. We had the most novel, <laughs> rare instance of, even though we always research separately and we never talk about what books we've chosen, etc. And we had more books than this. Uh-huh. Yeah. We we ended up with the same three books that we thought were the most helpful to us in researching for this podcast. 
I agree. I think that's, we should like, that gets a star or something. Um, the first I would suggest you read is her autobiography. It's called As I Remember. And it's the most peculiar autobiography that I think I've ever read because it's written in third person. You know, it's not I did this, I did that. It's she did this and she did that. And the paragraphs are all super short. It's actually very modern and blog style for a book that was written such a long time ago. And Lillian Gilbreth, Redefining Domesticity by Julie Desjardins, um, was so helpful. It had taken a lot of other books that we had and kind of integrated them into her very easy-to-read book. Yeah, this one was, it's, it's not a very large book. There's only 152 pages, but it's a very small font, and there's a lot of information in here. And the last book is called Making Time, Lillian Moeller Gilbreth, A Life Beyond Cheaper by the Dozen by Jane Lancaster, and that's kind of like a um, combination of these other two books. Exactly. I think it, wasn't it from 2004? It's the most yeah, it's recent, recent one, so. All right. Yep. That's it for books. Um, like Beckett had said, the uh, Montclair house was torn down. Um, the Nantucket house, which we didn't really talk too much about, but they did spend all their summers there. Um, Lillian wasn't actually a ocean gal. She didn't really like it, but she liked the time together as a family and not doing work. It was just their time to recharge, which it was like her life mission. It's, you know, part of it is to teach people to do that. Also, every time they left, by the way, Tom Greaves would charge visitors who had seen the Gilbert family on the newsreel to walk around the house, which horrified Lillian. Like, the underwear's on the line behind the house, Tom. (laughs) And he's like, nobody cares about that. And also, his pocket's all jingling with coins, you know. They couldn't break him of it. Yeah. No No matter how, like, naughty Tom was, they had to hang on to old Tom Greaves. Oh, also, do not go see that freaking Steve Martin movie. (sighs) It has nothing to do with it. Okay, they gave the mom the maiden name of Gilbreth. Otherwise, uh, there's nothing. There's 12 kids. Which isn't even correct. I know. (laughs) Because it's really 11. But ridiculous. Ridiculous. I can't even think about it without. I was so excited. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. No. No, in fact, it's not going to be great. If you never saw the original, okay, go see it. But, but it why did they, I don't know why they used that name. Couldn't they have used a different name? I mean, it has nothing to do with this. No, at nothing all. at all. I mean, I didn't think it was unentertaining. I'm a huge Bonnie Hunt fan. But obviously, we're going to send you back to the Museum of Menstruation. Any um, opportunity. Here's a rabbit hole alert. The Purdue Libraries has the Frank and Lillian Gilbreth collection. Lillian had donated all his papers, and on her passing, um, her papers would were donated to them as well. That's where all the pictures are. That's where all the documentation is. You could be playing around in that collection online for days. It's cool. And they were so nice to us. I When I sent them an email asking if we could um, use some of the photos, because there's not a lot of photos that are in the public domain um, for us to use on our website. And they were just so kind and so helpful. So I'd love it when that happens. Plus, they knew who we were. <laughs> That's good. I know. Um, I'm going to put a lot of the links that I like. It's easier to just put them on the Pinterest board because it'll take you back to the original source. So there's things in there like a chart of Thurblings, if you wish to inflict that upon yourself. Um, motion study photos, like I talked about. You you will not believe how cool those look. You could frame some of them and use them as art, especially the ones where they have the lights taped to the worker and you can see the motion. Mm-hmm. And it's captured as a line, a line of light in the air. Um, there are some of the films that were shown as movie trailers, In the National Portrait Gallery, there is a portrait 
of Lillian Gilbreth that she sat for but never was able to afford to buy. Daughter Ernestine and daughter Lillian, um, the second to youngest daughter, bought it with money from Cheaper by the Dozen book. When they, they asked the artist, please don't sell it, please can you hold it for us? And they were able to buy it once the book came out and they got the royalties from the book. And then on their deaths or right before, they donated it to the National Portrait Gallery. So that's where that is. I love that. There is a little um, display in the Smithsonian called On Time. None of the there. I thought there'd be a model kitchen. I was so excited to go see Julia Child's kitchens in there. That's right. Not Lillian Gilbert's kitchen, but they do have Frank's stopwatch. The stopwatch, which we didn't talk about this, Frank used to have this thing when he got home from a business trip. He'd blow the whistle and time how fast it took for everyone to stand in line. They have that stopwatch at the Smithsonian. And then uh, the United States issued a stamp in her honor in 1984. Otherwise, I'm going to just put everything on the Pinterest board. I think it'll be easier to find. You know what? And there is one. I'm going to put this link um, in our show notes. And I'll link up to her, this particular Pinterest board on there, too. But... um it's called engineergirl.org. It's for kids, and it's historic and modern women engineers. Um, it's Like I said, it's for kids. I loved it. I thought it, it just did such a great job of highlighting all these female engineers through history. Take your girls. Just go. Oh, this is a bit of a tangent. If you've never heard of Goldie Blocks, it's a project kit. It's marketed to girls, and it is inventions. It's a basically a science toy for young girls, maybe 6 to 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think that that's quite novel and quite new. And I, I don't know that, that I don't know if Lillian would approve or not, but I just think it's really neat to get girls started thinking about physics and science and inventing and the way that they can change the world. In yeah, science. I totally agree. Let's end with this. Our mission here today was to make you stop thinking of Lillian Gilbreth as just the mom on Cheaper by the Dozen. We want you to think of her when you use the equipment in your office that's placed where it is for more efficiency. Think of her when you're in your kitchen and you stir the pasta, then you drain it in a strainer in the sink, and then you put it back on the stove and you put it on a serving platter, all in four steps. That's when you should think of her. You should think of her when you shove one more bottle of salad dressing into the fridge door shelf. You should think of her when you sit in your ergonomically correct chair using your ergonomically designed keypad. You should think of her when you and your spouse share domestic responsibilities. You should think of her when you see or use a wheelchair ramp or walk into the big stall. Think of her when you know you're doing a chore, a job, the best way possible. Thanks for listening. Bye. Follow us through the forest of social media in all the usual places. And hey, check out our Pinterest board for Lillian Moeller Gilbreth. Special thanks to Jet Graham for voiceover work in the 30-second summary. you.